I'm reading today from Matthew chapter 17, the first nine verses. My sermon topic is the perspective from a mountaintop. I was going to title my sermon, Three Men on a Mountain. I thought, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot, so <laughs> probably the other, other one doesn't either. <laughs> I hope the sermon does. <laughs> Matthew 17 the first nine verses. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then Peter, then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. This scripture passage shows us three normal men in their flesh bodies on the Mount of Transfiguration in the presence of three supernatural men, two back from the dead, and Jesus the Son of God as he experiences a glorification and transfiguration before their very eyes. Can you imagine how these men felt as they saw what they had never envisioned in their life they'd be able to see? Before their eyes, the countenance of Jesus transformed like dazzling, blinding light. Even his clothing, white and glistening, and a voice out of the cloud speaking to them, and a bright cloud enveloping them. They saw things that they had never seen. And I believe Jesus chose them for a particular reason, to go to this vantage point on the mountaintop. He did not take all of the disciples. Everyone was not invited to attend this. But Peter, James, and John were there. They were permitted to see possibly and probably a little glimpse of what the resurrection will be like. They very likely saw a miniature resurrection. Not an actual resurrection because Jesus was not resurrected, nor was Moses or Elijah resurrected. But they saw the bodies of these two men who had been dead for many years. And they saw the physical body of Jesus transformed before their very eyes, as it were, into a glorified state, white and dazzling in light and appearance. 
They had a new perspective. And I'd like to talk to you this morning about seeing things from a new perspective, from God's vantage point, the way God looks at things, the way he wants you to look at things. I'd like for you to think about the perimeter of success, about the horizons around your life. Some people's horizon is not very distant from them because, like myself as a child, I was prone not to see things in too great a perspective, but I saw only those, those things immediately around me. I was not worried about getting old. I wasn't worried about what I was going to be when I got to be grown. I didn't think much about college. I didn't have a lot of financial worries. And I was very earthbound. I remember as a child being a member of a family with six children and my daddy, the only wage earner, we didn't have a lot of extra money and I wanted a 10 cent bus fare to cross town to visit other relatives. It was a great distance, maybe 12 to 15 miles and the bus fare there with a transfer ticket was 10 cents. We didn't have 10 cents to spare in our family. And we decided that we would go looking for dimes. We went all the well-worn paths across pastures where people walked to the bus stop. We visited all the bus stops in our community. We stopped in all the telephone booths and we didn't tear the, the box apart. We looked in, in the coin return slot to see if somebody forgot to pick their change up. And without fail, after a long search, we would always find enough money to get across town and back. And we had to do that by looking down. We would go looking down. And the, our vision was rather limited. We weren't thinking about college. We weren't thinking about who we were going to marry or what kind of career we would have. Or we were thinking about now, today. And where can I find this done? And we got what we looked for. People usually get what they look for. It's important for us to understand this this morning. Spiritually, it's true that you will receive from God what you believe for and what your goal and objective in life is. God is good enough to give us some handfuls on purpose and drop blessings along the way that we didn't think to ask for, didn't even know that we had need of. And he is a gracious, wonderful, heavenly father that bestows upon us many things that we do not ask for, but there are many things denied us because we did not ask. You have not because you ask not. We limit God's blessings in our life because of the perimeter of our vision being so narrowed that the horizon has come almost within the boundary of our immediate life and we don't think in the future and we don't worry about tomorrow. And I know there's scriptures that enjoin us not to be anxious about things and not to worry about things, not to fret, but there is nothing in the Bible to condemn people from planning and of working towards objectives and goals in lives, in their life. You can't see very far with a downward look. 
your future happiness and success is limited by what in medical science or, or those who doctor the eye they call myopia, which is nearsightedness, a short vision, short-sightedness. You, you have not reached out for those things that God tells us to reach forth for, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Some people's calling doesn't appear to be very high. Some people's race doesn't appear to be very important because they don't pray about it. They don't read the Bible. They don't study the roadmap. They're not concerned about the commandments. They're only concerned about the sweet now and now. And there's a lot of emphasis on the now generation. The now generation. And our young people have heard this and uh, it was injected into the philosophy of our culture a few years ago by even some great spiritual leaders talking about the now generation. And people are more wrapped up with the sweet now and now. They're not worried about what they refer to as pie in the sky and in the sweet by and by. They want the now blessings. And a boy and a girl on a date gets involved in sex before marriage because they have no thoughts of tomorrow. They're not worried about the impact on their future. And it doesn't bother them at the moment the remorse comes later in the realization that virtue has been wasted and lost and cannot be reclaimed, although there can be forgiveness. And God can redeem people from the mistakes that they have made. You cannot correct the mistakes that you have made. The distrust and suspicion that is born inside of people who are promiscuous carries over into their marriage. And I've counseled with countless numbers of people who have jealous spirits. And the reason they are jealous, they don't trust their mate because they themselves have a sorry track record. And they think possibly that their companion is going to fall into the same pitfall that they've slipped into. And a jealous spirit is a result of a character that has been marred and scarred by an, an, an self-inflicted mistakes. And those of you who wrestle with jealousy, you might as well get out on your knees, get God to forgive you for the sorry things you've done, and then trust other people. I don't have a lot of patience with jealousy because I've seen it destroy marriages and I've seen it break up friendships and destroy people's relationship in the house of God. Jealousies develop in church circles when people are guilty of gossiping about others. They think people are gossiping about them. And they're guilty of holding some grudge in their heart about other people. And they imagine people holding grudges about them. And so all kinds of bad feelings develop because of people's own sinfulness. And it could easily be taken care of with a trip to Calvary. And stay there long enough till you get the victory over it. 
Don't just have a, a, a passing glance at what Jesus provided on the cross, but stay there until you've gotten peace, until you can accept God's forgiveness, and then you can believe that Jesus saves other people and forgives them and helps them to do right also. The guilt on a boy's mind of having taken away from a girl something that was precious, the guilt in the girl's heart for having been involved in abortion, the guilt of parents and giving consent to ab abortion, and the lifelong struggle with those problems are a high price to pay when people's vision is so narrow and the circumference of their world is very small and their horizons are not distant enough to keep themselves from these pitfalls. They're only thinking about the sweet now and now. They have not climbed to God's mountain where they can see from His perspective and from His viewpoint and from scriptural principles how they should live and what they should do and how they should govern their lives. I want us to get out of the gutter. I want us to get out of the lowlands and ascend to God's plane of living where we can see the clear atmosphere I read a sermon by a great Methodist preacher many years ago that was entitled, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. Reverend J. Wallace Hamilton, one of the greatest Methodist preachers of the last half century. He's dead now, but I have most of his sermons in my library. All that I could get my hands on, I wrote to his widow and got some that were never published because he was a great preacher of the gospel. He founded the first open-air uh, drive-in church where on Sunday morning people came for miles around. Thousands of people gathered for church services outdoors and had a theater-type arrangement where they could put the, the speakers inside the windows of the automobiles and go to church that way. But a powerful preacher of the Word, on a clear day you can see forever. People need to get above the dust clouds and get above the pollution and above all the things that keep them from seeing great distances and out of, break out of this selfishness and out of this uh, now feeling to where we can get into the highlands and in the places where God can show us great things for our lives, where we can count the cost and not make the mistakes simply because we can see no further than our hand. I was in Carlsbad Caravans when they turned out the lights just to let us experience that darkness. And it was dark. You could not see the hand in front of your face. And some people have very limited vision in regard to life. They don't see much further than their hand in front of their face. This is the problem with young people who drop out of school prematurely and do not complete their high school education have no thoughts of college and higher education. This is the problem with people who feel that dating and social life are more important than homework. You young people listen to this pastor this morning. I know how important it is to hang draped over a living room chair on the other end of that lifeline, listening and talking for an hour or two hours at a time. See, I was a teenager once and I raised two. And I know how vital that is to your life. 
You just can't make it without that. Doesn't matter if you get a zero for, for not doing your homework, but you've got to keep up that social life. And, and the dating is so important that if you don't have a steady by the time you're 13, you're going to be a social outcast. I understand the problems of this complicated society. But I also understand the price that you pay for neglecting those grades, for neglecting things that relate to church and the Bible and home and family. Yes, it's important for parents to buy young people cars and motorcycles and everything else that occupies their time and gives them little thought of education and little thought of God and church and supports all the activities in the social world and doesn't give a hoot whether they go to the CA rally or not. I know the price, though, that is paid when people see no further than this narrow view that relates to the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the gratification of selfish desires. I've seen it over the many years of my ministry. I have watched parents pay the price for permitting 12 and 13 year olds to hold down a full-time job and go to school on the side. I have watched homes deteriorate and children go astray as a result of the world being more important than the house of God. And we're all fogies. And we're behind the times and we don't understand our society. But you may not understand as much of it as you think you do until the chickens come home to roost. Spiritual goals are obscured by sinful practices and the lust of the flesh. It's easy to memorize jokes. I marvel at men in our church who can rattle off jokes without ever catching a breath, who couldn't quote one verse of Scripture. It's a marvelous talent they have. Marvelous talent. Thank God I don't have it. <laughs> I don't attempt to memorize things that degrade and do not elevate, do not contribute to a higher form of living, but I am engaged with great difficulty. A scripture, in a scripture memory course that at my age, is not the easiest thing to achieve. But I keep plotting, and I keep trying. We need to lengthen the perimeter of our horizons. Psalms 121 verse 1 says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. We need to lift up our eyes above the world. We used to sing a song when I was a child, lift me up above the shadows, plant my feet on higher ground. And another one, Lord, lift me up and plant my feet on heaven's tableland, I think, something like that. <laughs> Didn't have a guest, I'd sing it for you. Don't want to embarrass him. 
<laughs> Brother Cale said the other day, there's some people who are gifted that can preach and some people who are gifted that can sing. I interrupted and I said, well, I thank God I can do both. <laughs> Young people, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to be a carpenter, a mechanic, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to serve other people in any field of endeavor. We should not look upon certain careers as though that person really did have a greater vision than others because some people are not gifted nor talented in, in those endeavors and it would be foolish. Uh, last night, or somewhere this week, somebody called me Dr. Wiggins. It was, it was Brother uh, Betzer, Friday night. He looked over at me and said, isn't that right, Dr. Wiggins? And he said, that sounds good, doesn't it? I said, and I whispered to my wife sitting beside me. I said, no, it sounds like, looks like an orchid on an onion top. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with you being the best mechanic in town. Or, you know, I marvel at men who can take a carburetor apart and put it back together. I'm glad we have some of them that can because we have to resort to their, you know, if we, if we felt like, well, now, you know, they just really don't amount to a whole lot. Uh, they ought to say to us when we pull our limousines up there, you go on down the street, fix it yourself. But God has given people talents in different ways to use their hands their eyes, their minds. I marvel at these people who can think in terms of a computer and work with computers. It's a marvelous gift that God has given to them. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to be a preacher or wanting to be a missionary or wanting to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a minister of music. There is nothing wrong with you wanting to fulfill some form of Christian service that will serve other people under God with God's gospel as the product that the Lord has enabled you to work with. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were on top of this mountain. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Jesus represented the priesthood. So we have here representatives of the, the law, the prophets, and the priests. Moses had seen the promised land from a mountaintop many years prior to this. He had had other experiences on a mountaintop. He went up on Mount Sinai and received the commandments, the tables of stone. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 2, he went up into Mount Sinai where thunder and lightning and fire and smoke prevailed, and no one was allowed to touch that mountain. There he received law and revelation and instruction. There the glory of God was so great that he could not bear to look on it. And when he did come down out of that mountain, his face shone with the glory of God. He had to put a veil over it. So he went up to the mountain. When it came time for him to die, he was not allowed to go into the promised land, but he had another mountaintop experience. In the Pisgah mountain range across the river Jordan, God took him up to the top of Mount Nebo, 
and allowed him to look over the river Jordan all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and to Mount Hermon in the north and down to Beersheba in the south. He had an overview of all the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to their seed after them. And he was not permitted to go in because he had failed the Lord in smiting the rock the second time when he was told to speak to the rock. But he was allowed to see the promised land. Think of this. What satisfaction this man of God had had. After 40 years of trials, after 40 years of people at times saying, we're going to stone you, or we're going back to Egypt, now then he has them at the borders of the promised land. Nothing but the river Jordan and the city of Jericho standing in their way, and he knows that General Joshua will see to it that that's nothing too big for them to conquer. And so Moses, with great satisfaction, stands on Mount Nebo and looks over the promised land that he had led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And from this perspective, he could only praise God because the Lord was faithful. God had brought them through that wilderness. Their shoes had not worn out. Their clothing had not grown old. God fed them with manna from above, brought water out of the rock, defeated armies that stood in their path and worked miracles in their behalf. This man of God didn't stand there bewailing the fact that he couldn't go over. He accepted the medicine that God had given him and said, I should have known better. And so I'm not going to argue and quibble with God. I'll just thank him that these people are going over. I thank him. Praise God. And there that day he died and God buried him. And nobody knows where he's buried because God chose the burial site. The reason why nobody knows where Moses is buried, they'd make a shrine out of it. And so a secret place that God buried Moses there on Mount Nebo across the river Jordan, right at the border of the promised land. And I don't believe there was a feeling in this man of God's heart that he had any injustice done toward him by the Lord. Some people question God and blame God. Well, I worked so hard for this and then you didn't give it to me. Other people are going to get to enjoy it. You ought to thank God that you had a part in what other people can be blessed with. The other day, a dear friend of this church came through town and called me. She had attended the funeral of her sister in North Carolina or South Carolina. And she called me and then she put a check in the mail as she does every year in memory of her mother, Sister Eva McMillan. Sister McMillan prayed for this church, prayed for this preacher. When I came to this city, I went to her door and I will never forget how cordial she was. Little frail woman that was hardly physically able to get about and attend services, but she did. But she was a mighty prayer warrior and a wonderful inspiration. I'll never forget the first Thanksgiving that we spent here. We were in a new town. I still missed my church family in Memphis, Tennessee. And she just bestowed upon us out of her pantry some of her home-cooked canned goods and a pumpkin pie and some of the things that she had prepared for Thanksgiving and shared them with us. It was not the value of those things in material sense that meant anything to us, but her thoughtfulness and her love. But I said to Jessie Morris when she called and I wrote to her a letter, 
thanking her for the contribution to the church which went into the building fund. This is in memory of your dear mother who prayed so much for this church. If she can just look over the balcony of heaven this morning and see hundreds of people. At that time, we had about 125 to 150 people, counting on everybody. And if she, can just, if she is able to see us down here this morning, I want you to know she's like Moses. There's no regret on her part that she can't be here. She's in a better place. But oh, I'm sure she's thrilled that she had a part in what is happening here today.